0: Cool. Um, Continuing our series in James, Uh, we're really coming to the last third of this letter. Um, A lot of you will know we just finished a big series through Hebrews recently, and if you're with us through that series, you'll know that the big main message of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He is better. He's far superior than anyone or anything in the universe. And because that's true, the writer of Hebrews actually calls us, God's people, to persevere in our faith. That's the main message of Hebrews is that we cling on to our faith, that we continue on in this race to the very end, holding on to our faith. Um, and so James is really, it's, it's almost like a, a sequel in a way. It's kind of a part two to Hebrews. Uh, maybe that's why it comes right after Hebrews in the Bible, but um, it's all about living out your faith. That's what this letter is. It's, all, it's, it's very practical. Uh, it's very gritty in places. Um, James is saying, Here's what it actually looks like to do what the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to do. This is what it actually looks like to, to live out your faith. But he says it's, it's not something that you just kind of assent to mentally. It's not a set of ideas that you're like, yes, I agree with that. Actually, what it looks like is it changes the way you live your life. It, it actually changes the way the people of God live, how, how you treat people, how you speak to people. It's the way you live in this world. It's about living out that faith. James says it's about being not just someone who hears the word, but actually does it. James gives us this, this picture of uh, a faith that works, a, f- a faith that is in action. Um, let me just quickly remind you where we've been so far. I'm not going to preach it all again, but James 1, he, he really begins with this topic of trials. And he, he, he tells us really how he expects Christians to respond to trials. Um, and he tells us we are to endure them with rejoicing. Um, I'm not going to preach all that again, even though I want to, because it's pretty near and dear to my heart right now. But he, he then, he kind of finishes chapter 1 by turning to the subject of true Christianity. Um, and he, he, he really contrasts a true claim of faith with false claims of faith. Uh, and in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, he gives this summary statement of what true, genuine Christianity looks like. He calls true Religion, true holding on to the faith. And he gives this kind of three part summary in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. He says, firstly, you can, it'll show in your speech, it'll show in the way that you use your tongue. Secondly, it shows in our care of those in need around us. And thirdly, it shows in our refusal to conform to prevailing worldliness. That's what true Christianity looks like. True religion is it shows in your speech. It shows in your care for those in need, and it shows in your refusal to conform to the world. Those are his three main subjects, and he just kind of weaves in and out of it through the rest of the letter, Um, and you've kind of seen how we've done that. In chapter two, he, again, contrasts sinful partiality, showing favoritism to some people in the community versus what true fellowship actually looks like, Um, Uh, He then goes on to show us the evidence of true faith, which as we said, it's a faith that actually works. It's a faith that's an action, that does, that loves, that shows uh, the love of God. And then uh, last week, Andrew looked at, he really looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 3, where we looked at the tongue. Um, Those who have true faith use their tongue to build up the community, rather than to divide and to to tear apart. And that really brings us to uh, today's study, this passage where James He begins to talk about wisdom. Um, And the connection, really, between talking about the tongue, or speech, and talking about wisdom, we really found that at the end of last week's sermon, where he said, "What, what comes from your mouth, what comes from your tongue, it's simply a reflection of what's in your heart. So that which comes from your tongue springs forth from the source, and the source is your heart. And he pointed out that the source, or your heart, Needs to be changed. It needs to become pure in a way. And although it needs to be changed, the the tricky thing is that we cannot change it. You cannot change your heart. It's actually God that has to change your heart. You have to have God's grace in order to have a changed heart. So you can see how we've, we've kind of moved from the symptom of the problem, which is that which comes out of your tongue, to the source of the problem. What's in your heart? What's in your source? What's in there? And then James moves on and he asks this question here. Whether, um, he, he says, how do you know that whether someone has true wisdom in their heart? You're looking in their source. How do you, can you tell someone has true wisdom in their heart? I'm going to read the passage one more time. Uh, verse 13, chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I pray for us one more time and we'll really look at this. Um, Father, we ask right now in this moment for your help. Um, we need you desperately. We ask for your wisdom. and um, We pray that you would... Uh, your truth would be on display, we pray that you would open hearts and, uh, and change people, um, that you would give blind people sight, that you would bring dead people to life again, um, because that's your job, that's only what you can do, so we pray that you would do that today. In your name we pray, amen. So how do you know if you're wise? Um, how do you know when someone else has wisdom? And um, we have a lot of smart people in our church. We have doctors, uh, we have teachers, psychologists, um, very kind of like we have intellectuals, we have people who, who know a lot about theology, even. We have people in our church who know their Bibles really well. So I, it's important to ask that question: who among you is wise? James once asked that question. How do you know if someone has wisdom, real true wisdom, stored up in their heart? Think about the various realms of your life. Um, Who are the people that you're thinking of right now that you're like, that's that's someone who's wise? How do you define their wisdom? What about in, in our church family? Who are those in our church that you look to and you're like, that's the wise one? What about in your workplace? What about in your friendship group? What about in your home, in your family at home? Who are the wise ones? Who do you go to for help when you're in need? And then let me ask, why are you thinking of that person? What is it that makes you go, that's a wise person? What defines their wisdom? It's kind of difficult to pinpoint, can't it be? Because as you know, having knowledge doesn't always equate to having wisdom, so brain power, uh, just having s- smarts, it doesn't always make someone wise. Um, we're a Bible-believing church, and the Bible says a lot about wisdom, so we wanna go there for our answer. Um, if, you're, if you're familiar with the Bible, we're talking about wisdom. You may have already gone to Psalm 9, which says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Um, so if you want true wisdom in your heart, the psalmist would say the best place to start is by fearing the Lord. Um that, that word simply means it doesn't mean to like run away from because they're just terrified of this person, this God. Rather, it means to stand in awe of, to, to be, uh, to, to revere. It's this acknowledgement of who God is and all of his wisdom and all of his holiness and all of his might and power. And then who we are in comparison to him. And Job says the same thing as the psalmist in Job 28. He asks rhetorically, where can wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Do you see how he's, he's mirroring James 3.13? Where is wisdom? Where is understanding? And then Job answers himself by saying, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. And so this idea of fear of the Lord being kind of core to wisdom, uh, it's found all throughout Scripture. Um, in the Old Testament, that phrase, fearing the Lord, was really equivalent to trusting the Lord, and it really referred to, to saving faith. Um, you, you see this uh, in, in how Moses teaches the people of God. Moses had this incredibly difficult job of taking a large group of people and teaching them what it means to be God's people. That, that's an incredible job that he had, and this is what he told uh, the people of Israel Uh, what it means to have a relationship with God. He says, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God. You shall walk in his ways and fear him. He says, now Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What it means to be in a relationship with God is to fear him, to trust him in that way. Um, In the New Testament, even, you have this term God-fearer that was used to, to talk about certain people. And he's, he's used to talk about Gentiles who uh, converted to Judaism. So they, have, they had trusted, put their trust in the Lord to the extent that their knowledge and uh, their understanding of the revelation of God allowed. Um, you see this in Acts 17, 17, Paul was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. So you see this fearing the Lord means submitting to him, means trusting in him and, and coming into relationship with him. Um, The New Testament uh, gets even more explicit about what wisdom is. Um, 1 uh, 1, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul declares that Christ, Jesus, is the power of God and the wisdom of God, who became to us wisdom of God, the righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He tells the Colossians that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's really specific, isn't it? The New Testament says, if you want wisdom, Go to Jesus. That that, that is where wisdom is found. He is wisdom for us. um, He's the source of God's wisdom. Be with him if you want true wisdom. Um, Hopefully that gives you an idea of what wisdom is. How do we kind of define it? It's this fear of the Lord. It's submitting to him. It's trusting in him, submitting to him. It's going to Jesus. It's being with Jesus, becoming like him. The source of the wisdom of God. That's what true wisdom is. But that's not really what, what James is trying to get to here. James isn't trying to really tell us, here's what wisdom is. James is trying to tell us, here's how you recognize it in someone's life. So that's the big question. How do you recognize that someone is really wise? He gives us this kind of test of wisdom. He gives us the answer to that question in Verse 13. Again, who among you is wise? He's, it's this, this test. He's saying, that person that you're thinking of, bring them out here, and, and let's, let's put them to the test in a way. Let's see if they really do have true wisdom in their heart. Who among you is wise? Here's how you tell. It's the second half of verse 13. He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. He says, let him show it in their good behavior in, in their, their, their deeds, in the gentleness of wisdom. If you're taking notes, if you have a Bible, maybe even underline those three words. Let him show. That, that should probably, it should bring you back to chapter 2 again. Chapter 2, verse 18, where uh, James is, gives us this, this test of, of true faith. He says, here's how you test if someone has true faith. Show it to me in the way you live. Show it to me in your works. Show me your faith and your deeds. He says, if you have genuine faith, then you'll be able to see it. There'll be the evidence of it in the way someone lives their life. And he's saying the same thing about true wisdom here. He says, you'll be able to see it in the way someone lives their life. Wisdom is something that can be shown. It can be displayed. And if it is not stored up in someone's heart, then it cannot be shown. It is shown in someone's conduct and how they live their life rather than in their brain power, rather than in what they know. That's how you show that someone is wise. James isn't writing off the the need for wisdom. He's not like, you don't need any of that. No, he's just showing us this is how it can be shown in someone's life. This is how you recognize it. The evidence of it is not ultimately intellectual, but behavioral. Um, everyone will be probably familiar with uh, Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, where uh, we're given really, here's the essence of life, and Proverbs is all about wisdom. Uh, that passage says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your way acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So, In that passage, Solomon is saying, wisdom is about acknowledging the Lord in all of your ways. James is saying, wisdom is not simply seeing how you acknowledge Him, it's actually acknowledging Him in all your ways. It's not just being able to say, this is how you do it, it's actually doing it, it's seeing it and doing it. It's actually living in the fear of God, in the awe of God, in respect and reverence to Him in all of your ways. and It's in every aspect of your life, living in accordance with all of His ways. James is saying that Christians are called by God to actually live wisdom. It's something that can be seen in the way that they live their lives. Um, I'll be honest, I don't, I don't love the way the ESV renders that text good conduct in verse 13. Um, that kind of makes me think of that like goody two-shoes in school, never did anything wrong, always put the right foot forward, and you just kind of hated them for it. Maybe, maybe that's some of you, and I probably would have hated you in school, sorry, but that's not what James is saying here. That's not the word that he uses here. There's, there's actually two, two ancient Greek words for kind of good conduct or good in this way. Um, the first one is, is agathos, which is that kind of broad, general sense of the word good. It's virtuous. It's right. It's good. Um, that's not the word that James uses. He actually uses the second word, which is kalos. And that word literally means beautiful. It's, it's literally, show it to me with their beautiful life. Wisdom is not just, it's not just living the good and virtuous and right life. Wisdom is shown in a life that is beautiful. There's, there's a beauty about a wise person's life. There's an, an attractiveness about a wise person's life. And James actually tells us what it is that, that makes that person's life beautiful. He says it's meekness. It's shown in the in the, the meekness or the gentleness of wisdom. So these, these good works that are on display, you can see them, but they're done with the spirit of humility, of gentleness. True believers are to demonstrate true wisdom and to understand and true wisdom and understanding by a life of gentleness. And please don't misunderstand what gentleness means. And meekness that word, it doesn't mean weakness, okay? That's easy, that's a good kind of rhyme. Meekness doesn't equal weakness. Um, meekness, gentleness in God's kingdom, rather what that word means is, is power under control. Um, we, we did a series a long time ago on, on uh, Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and we went over that, blessed are the meek. It doesn't mean weak, it means power under control, and um, that word's actually, it's often used of, of a horse, a wild horse that was broken and, and its power was made useful to its owner. Um, anybody been around like a horse, like a farm horse? Um, powerful animals, but that power is, is under control and it's useful for their owner. That's, that's what meekness, that's what gentleness means. So for, for believers, gentleness is to, to be willingly under the sovereign control of God. This is how Moses was described in, in Numbers 12, verse 3. That passage says that Moses was very meek um, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. So Moses was very meek. He was very gentle in that way. Um, but you don't read Exodus and think, Moses was kind of a weak guy. Moses was, was very decisive. Uh, he, he was a very strong leader. He, his anger could be provoked when needed, so this, this meekness of wisdom, this gentleness that's on display in the good deeds of a wise person's life, it's, it's gentleness, it's meekness, it's humility. Essentially what he's saying is this is, a, this is an essential character to a follower of Christ. It's an essential character. If you are a follower of Christ, this will be growing and on display in your life. This isn't, it's not, hey, some followers of Jesus are, are going to be meek and gentle, some are gonna be more brash. and That's not true. And if you are a true follower of Christ, if his spirit is truly living in you, then you will begin to bear the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We're not perfect in this, are we? No one's gonna display perfect gentleness this side of glory, but those with true wisdom stored up in their heart will be growing and will be showing in their gentleness. True believers will be moving away from sinfulness towards Christlikeness, which is gentleness. James already said that back in chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, therefore put away all filthiness, put away all rampant wickedness, throw that off, and turn and What does he say? Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. True followers of Christ will be growing in their gentleness. They will be showing that in their lives. True followers of Christ will be becoming more like Jesus. And Jesus says, this is what's in my heart. He tells us that in Matthew 11. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart. That's what Jesus is like, and those who follow him will be becoming more like him. So when you're looking for true wisdom in someone, when you're looking for true wisdom in yourself, James says, look at their behavior. Look at the way they live their life. Look for gentleness. If if there's no gentleness, there's no true wisdom in their source, in their heart, Go, go look for it in someone else. Go follow someone else. If you don't see gentleness, that person doesn't have true wisdom stored up in their heart, and they're not worth following. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy, one of the main qualifications of the elders of the church is gentleness. If they don't display that, don't make them one of your elders. Um, that's his first point. When looking for true wisdom, look for it in someone's life, in their behavior, in their gentleness. And really, for the rest of the, the section, James begins to again compare and contrast. Uh, he, he shows us two kinds of wisdom uh, one is true wisdom, one is false wisdom. It's, it's not really wisdom at all. Um, and, and he shows us that each of these wisdoms have a source, they come from somewhere. Each of these wisdoms are motivated by something, and each of these wisdoms result in something. They have a source. They have a motivation. They have a result. Let's look at the first one, um, starting in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So this is false wisdom, What's the source of it? Where does this kind of wisdom come from? James says it doesn't come down from above. He says it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. He says it's from the devil. It's, it's, it's worldly wisdom. It's earthly, but he says the problem is goes much deeper than the earth. This kind of wisdom is the complete antithesis of, of anything that comes from God. It's, it's, it's subtly yet powerfully demonic. You get the first sight of this kind of demonic wisdom back in Genesis 3, where the serpent tempted Eve to, to do what? To, to trust in his wisdom rather than in God's wisdom. So that was Eve's choice. That was the, the, the choice put before her. She so could either trust in the heavenly wisdom from above. Or she could trust in the earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom from Satan himself. That, that, that's still his temptation for every single one of you in this room today. And David Platt says that one of the most important factors of our growth in wisdom is our perspective. And that's really true. And this is what Hebrews taught us, and Hebrews called us to have an eternal perspective. Hebrews says, keep your eyes on the finished line. Keep keep going in that way. Don't be focused on the here and now. We're focused on the on finishing the race. We're focused on, on, on the, the reward at the end of the race, on eternal glory. And that eternal perspective actually changes the way we live our life here on earth. But that's not what worldly wisdom does. Worldly wisdom perceives everything on its immediate effect. What, what's best for me? Now, My self-advancement. What's best for self-pleasure now? That's a really dangerous perspective, church. Um, And and it brings us really to the the motivation of this this worldly false wisdom. Uh, We see it's motivated by self-centered ambition. Wisdom in the world, it measures everything how it affects you. It's concerned with how I can advance myself how you can promote yourself, how you can assert yourself. A worldly wisdom approaches every relationship, every conversation, every circumstance with the question, what can I get out of this? And James says, that's from the devil. And we saw this back in chapter 2. Remember, Thomas was here and he, he, he talked about favoritism. And, and we saw that, uh, that in this church, the, the poor were being... Uh, um, Forgotten, They were being uh, ignored, and there was a favoritism towards those who had power and those who had money. And and that favoritism was driven by nothing but a self-centered ambition. People were ignoring the poor because they couldn't get anything from them. That's the kind of wisdom that that always asks, what's best for me? It's the kind of wisdom that leads to, to broken marriages, that leads to... They're being poor, that are being ignored in our midst. The kind of wisdom that leads to decimated churches. What's best for me? That's that's the motivation of worldly wisdom. How do do you achieve your aspiration, assert yourself, promote yourself, advance yourself? Well, what does Jesus say? Deny yourself. Self-centered ambition, is at the heart of worldly wisdom. And James says it's demonic. It's filled with envy. It's always comparing yourself to others to see who's better or worse. And James says that the result of this kind of wisdom is disorder and evil. That's where earthly wisdom always leads. A wisdom that is marked by self-centered ambition leads to broken homes It leads to churches being filled with disgruntled members. It's a recipe for disaster and for evil. Earthly wisdom produces anger. It produces bitterness, resentment, divisions. This wisdom robs us of love, intimacy, trust, fellowship, and harmony with others. Which is why we desperately need another kind of wisdom. um, uh, Which is why James turns to describe this Other wisdom in verse 17. A godly wisdom that comes down from heaven. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, doesn't show favoritism, and it's sincere. It's without hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the source of this wisdom is is vastly different. This wisdom is from above. This wisdom is from heaven. This is a wisdom that that comes down from above. And this should bring you back to chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, where James says, If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. See, this is tricky. You don't get this kind of wisdom from intellectual effort. You don't get this kind of wisdom from practical experience much as you get it from being with God. This is a wisdom that, that comes down from above. It's different from knowledge. You, you don't get this kind of wisdom. This isn't information that you fill your heads with. You, you don't get this kind of wisdom from going to university or to from going to, to seminary. You don't get this kind of wisdom from reading all of the right books. You don't get this kind of wisdom by being in the right family or the right community or having the right people around you or the right friends. That's not where you get this wisdom from. You get this wisdom by asking the Lord for it. It's it's his that he gives to us generously from heaven. You get it from being with God. It's, It's the fruit of being with him. Do you want this wisdom? Then just go to him. Be with him, ask him for it, and he will give it to you. How good is that? How how generous is he? That's the, the source of this wisdom. It comes down from above. And this wisdom has a different perspective than the earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom, all about the here and the now. How can I advance myself? How can I get pleasure now? Uh, Heavenly wisdom sees things from an eternal perspective that can only come from God. Heavenly uh, wisdom has this 10,000-year-from-now perspective that, that changes the way wise people live here and now. It changes the way you treat others. It changes the way you speak to others. It changes the way you live. And that kind of perspective can only come from God as well. We must go to Him Constantly in prayer, constantly in the word, crying out to him in order to receive heavenly wisdom. That's the point of Proverbs 2, 1 to 8. Um, I'll read it to you. That passage says, My son or daughter, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out Or insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of the saints. Do you want godly wisdom? Do you? Go to him. Just just ask him for it. Search for it. Set your heart upon it like it's silver, like it's this hidden treasure, except it's not really hidden. It's, it's, It's found in him, and he's waiting to just generously give it to you. He's waiting to give it generously to you, and as James says, without criticizing you for your past. Guilt doesn't play a part here. Just go to him and he will give it to you. Isn't that so good? And we as a church ought to be desperate for this. We ought to be crying out to him daily for this wisdom. And only God can give this wisdom, uh, which is why godly centered wisdom is motivated by uh, God-centered humility. Worldly wisdom, motivated by self-centered ambition. Godly wisdom, James says, is motivated by a God-centered humility. Because we cannot attain this heavenly wisdom on our own accord, because we can't uh, find it on our own, that we must go to him for it. We must ask him for it. The motivation is a God-centered humility. It's, It's us fearfully and joyfully and humbly going before him, the all-wise God, and, and asking for it. It's, it's this God-centered humility. And look at how this wisdom is described in verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There's a lot of beautiful things going on here. Um, I want you to see how this this heavenly wisdom that, that James is describing, it actually mirrors the Beatitudes of Jesus in, in Matthew 5. Remember Matthew 5, Jesus describes those in his kingdom. He says, this is what The people in my kingdom are like. And I want you to see how James is mirroring him. James says, godly wisdom is first pure. Jesus says, the pure in heart are blessed. They shall see God. James says, godly wisdom is peaceable. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. James says, godly wisdom is gentle. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. James says godly wisdom is, is open to reason, it, it, it's, it's submissive, it's compliant. Jesus says, blessed are the, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James says godly wisdom is full of mercy. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they, will, uh, uh, they shall receive mercy. Godly wisdom, James says, is full of good fruit. James says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You see how James, when he's describing godly wisdom first of all he's he's essentially describing the fruit of the spirit in, in, in Galatians five, and he's also mirroring Jesus in his description of those who are in god's kingdom and what's interesting is if you're if you're to read this verse verses seventeen and eighteen uh, in the original language, which i I'm not, I can't do that um I can't say it to you james he's actually organizing these these characteristics of wisdom in, in this beautiful literary style. Um, so they're actually, he groups them together by the way they sound. So it's this, this beautiful poetry to this wisdom. So again, it's this, this, this picture of godly wisdom results in this, this beautiful life. And James actually just reflects that in the way he writes it. This wisdom is God centered, it's not man centered, it's not you centered. It results in a beautiful humility in us, which is exactly the opposite of worldly wisdom, which produces self-centered pride in man. Um, but uh, this beautiful life of humility, it's, it's not the only thing that this life, that this wisdom uh, results in. Um, James gets more specific. Look at what godly wisdom results in. Earthly wisdom results in disorder and evil. In verse 18, James says, Godly wisdom results in peace and righteousness. God's wisdom produces that which is right, that that which is pleasing and honoring to God, and that which is good for the people of God. Righteousness and peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God, his family. And peace is, Is what God desires for our relationships. It's what God desires for our church. It's what God desires for our city. That's what Jesus came to restore. He came to restore our shalom. He came to be our Prince of Peace. our, our, Our shalom, our peace, our unity. That's what He wants in your relationships. That's what He wants in our church, in our homes. Not peace at all costs. Not, not he's not saying let's just all get along by avoiding the truth, by avoiding conviction to truth. That that's not what James is saying because how does he describe this wisdom? He says, first of all, it's pure. So that word means chaste. There's a chastity to it, to there's there's a singleness to God's ways. So this wisdom seeks him in all of our ways. It's it's not peace at all cost. It's it's first pure, but it's a purity that results in peace. We cling to the truth. That's, that's why some of you are here even. I know some of you have come to the, this church family because you're worshiping at another church that stopped clinging to the truth. And you, you, you want to be loyal to God and this truth in the Bible. And that's painful. It's a painful experience for people, but it's okay. I hope you do that with us. Okay? I hope if, if we stop clinging to the truth, Go find another church that does. You have my permission to do that. We're not talking about having peace at all costs. James is talking about those who promote peace amongst their brothers and sisters. It's pure, but it's a purity that produces peace. What does that look like, though? What does this peace-promoting, righteousness-harvesting kind of wisdom look like in our context, in our church family. We could probably go in any direction, talk about a lot of different things, but here's one that I thought about this week, and I think it's really important, is not giving in to gossip. Um, Let's say you had a brother or a sister, maybe even uncharacteristically, share with you a a piece of gossip, um, and if you were to share that Information uh, you would bring division into maybe a family or even a church, and let's say you decide that's going to die with me. I'm I'm not going to pass that on, and that's not going to go anywhere else. That's what true wisdom looks like. That that's a wisdom that's a that's a peace-promoting Christian who has heavenly wisdom stored up in their heart. They are concerned not with selfish ambition but with promoting peace with promoting unity and righteousness in their community. Real wisdom is peace-promoting. It has an agenda of promoting godly, spiritual, true Christian unity amongst their community. Those, Those with true wisdom, godly wisdom from above, stored up in their heart, they use their tongues for building up their community rather than dividing and tearing it down. See, one wisdom is, is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic, it produces disorder and evil. One wisdom is from above, it's, it's gentle, it's peaceable, and it promotes righteousness and peace. I think not, here's why I think that's important, not giving in to gossip is not simply because not because this is a young church. Speak to the older brothers and sisters. They'll tell you that it, gossip isn't like an age thing. Older folks can gossip just as much or more than young folks. It's true. It's not because we're young. I think it's important because of the, the values that we've chosen to build our church upon. We've chosen to have a church that, um, that values togetherness, that values bearing with one another's burdens, We value openness and honesty. And because of that, we desperately need a wisdom that comes down from above in order to do those things right in a way that actually promotes peace, that results in unity and righteousness. If we lack wisdom from above, if all you have in your heart is an earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom, then even our attempts at building a Christian community will result in disorder and evil. Heavenly wisdom will actually be able to tell you in that moment whether you are truly bearing with one of those burdens or whether you are simply being a gossip and complaining. And it is a fine line at times, it's hard to recognize. So we desperately need a wisdom from above. Earthly wisdom results in disorder, unity, evil. Heavenly wisdom will always result in peace, unity, and righteousness. We desperately need wisdom from above that only God can give us. That's one kind of negative aspect of it. Here's a positive aspect of it is that the people that come to village should should be desperate to be here because the people that make up this family have true wisdom stored up in their heart, and that results in a life that is gentle, a life that is loving, a life that is peace-promoting, you won't find that anywhere else in the city in the same way. I talked to one brother this, this week that said, Man, I haven't, I haven't, because of circumstances, I haven't been able to, to be there at a gathering in about three weeks, and I'm desperate to be there. And part of the reason is because I need to be around God's people, those people who have wisdom, those people who are, who are gentle, those people who are welcoming, those people who are peace-promoting and loving and joyous, unlike any other people in this world. That should be what draws people here. We have true wisdom stored up in our heart, and that results in a life of gentleness and love. We desperately need wisdom from above that only God can give. James is saying, how do you know you have the seed of godly wisdom stored up in your heart? It springs forth in the fruit of righteousness because you re-sow it in the lives of others, and you sow it in peace, you do it with a desire of creating peace, peace between God and man, peace between Christian brothers and sisters. And that's what we desire for our church. We, at Village, we want to produce disciples who are wise, disciples who, who know, know God, they're with him, and that results in wisdom in their lives. Um, we also want to recognize that only the Spirit can give you that wisdom. I can't give it to you. I can't teach it to you. Only the Spirit can make you wise. Are you desperate for that wisdom this morning? Are you desperate for that for our church family? If you are, join me in asking God for it. Join me in seeking it like it's silver. Let's cry out to Him for heavenly wisdom. If you lack wisdom completely today, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, again, bad news, I can't give it to you. Um, Only the Spirit can give it to you. The good news is All you have to do is go to him and be with him and ask him for it. And he said, I will generously give it to you. And if you're a Christian today and you realize that you're not as wise as you ought to be, it's probably all of us. Again, there's no technique. There's no read this book or here's a seven or 12 step technique to becoming more wise. You simply need to apply to the Spirit. And by the grace of the Spirit, through the means of grace, the Spirit will grant you that wisdom. This is why we talk about abiding in Jesus daily. Be with him. Go to him. He will produce peace in your life and wisdom. He said it already, and he's about to say it again. That the, James says, the, the reason we lack wisdom is because we haven't asked for it. We need to go to the Father of lights, who is willing and generous in the way he gives and answers prayers, We need to pray for wisdom. Uh, May may God grant us that wisdom in our church family. Um, Would you stand with me if you're able and let's pray. Um, Father in heaven, the all-wise one, God who exists um, even outside of space and time. You know all. There's Nothing you are surprised by. Yet you are also all gracious. You are merciful. You are abounding in steadfast love. We thank you for that because we lack wisdom naturally. Um, we, we come to you, Lord, asking for your help. We ask you for your wisdom. Give us what only you can give. I pray for these brothers and sisters. Um, I pray that you would uh, stir up in them a desire for your wisdom, a desire for um, seeking you, Lord, and, and what only you can give. I pray that they would turn away from filthiness, turn away from rampant evilness in that way, and meekly, humbly receive your implanted word, which is able to save. Create in our church wise disciples. Disciples who have generous love on display in their lives. These things in Jesus' name, amen.